My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Uh, joining me there is Elbridge uh, Colby. Uh, Elbridge, introduce yourself to the audience and to be a little bit more formally. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? Sure. Well, great. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Michael. Uh, really a pleasure to join you and your listeners. Um, uh, my name is Bridge or Elbridge Colby is my full name. I'm currently run a small think tank focused on great power competition and what the United States um, can do to address it, particularly by developing kind of clear eyed, clear headed strategies to do so. I've been in the national security space for the last 20 years in various roles in that of government, mostly mostly outside. Um, probably the, the two things I'd, I'd mention most um, saliently would be I was the lead official in the development of the 2018 National Defense Strategy in the Pentagon, which shifted the defense establishment, at least notionally, towards focusing on China and, and to a lesser degree, Russia. And then I, I wrote a book, um, came out in 2021, called uh, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in the Age of Great Power Conflict, which kind of lays out in a more kind of comprehensive and rigorous way, the arguments that I make on on X and, and elsewhere, my podcast you mentioned, um, uh, to focus particularly on on China and the military balance with China. And that's really what I've been spending the last couple of years since since being out of the Pentagon, well, it's getting to be a little while, so more, five years now, um, is really to try to get us to focus on China and particularly to focus on China from the perspective of the military balance, or as I say in, that, in the title of my book, denial, uh, which is a relatively modest standard uh, and, and I'm trying to differentiate and kind of get us clear headed on, on that, but also to sort of both amp us up in some ways, but also limit us in other ways, because there's a tendency to kind of turn this into an existential conflict, which I, I think we want to avoid and is not necessary and would be incredibly dangerous. So trying to thread that needle, I'm very concerned. It's great to talk to you and your 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 counterparts, your colleagues, listeners, as I think it's important, not just that sort of policy wonks understand this and politicos, but but people who are looking at the markets and so forth, I think that's that's come a long way in the last couple of years. But always, uh, uh, you know, important to engage that. Obviously, money money is what makes the world go round. When did you actually start writing that book, putting pen to paper? I started about a month after I left the Pentagon, so this would have been in I think August of 2018. The reason I did it is, um, you know, a couple of reasons, but really to sort of give, you know, in a sense, the, the biggest lever that that someone like me could pull. You know, I, I was one of several, obviously, or a number who helped pull that in the Pentagon. That's the big formal strategy shift that happened. But in a, in, a, in a wide, you know, huge, I believe the American defense establishment is the largest, if not the largest employer in the world in a huge establishment like that. But also in a democracy and, of course, you know, dealing with our allies, which is, you know, exponentially more um, d- democracies, basically, usually. You need to bring people around, you need to convince them and you need to develop, you know, you need to to convince them why this shift is so important. And so I, I wrote the book partially in order to give a kind of, I call it like a sort of platonic version of the strategy, you know, as I would lay it out in a more kind of conceptual way, but also to make it so that all the, the, the millions and millions of people who have some influence um, or, you know, the hundreds of millions of people who have some claim to be affected by these issues can understand it and, and will, will support the kind of shift in policies that, that we need. So the reason I asked that question about when you started actually uh, writing a book and you know, writing a book is a very serious and, and involved endeavor, but I am curious how COVID maybe changed some of the thinking or the thesis because a lot, uh, a large part of these supply chain disruptions are directly because of the interrelationship with China. Yeah, I, I would say COVID made a major impact for me on the book in terms of my ability to write it, but very little on my thinking I, in the sense that I would say very little has happened in sense, 
nothing has happened in the last five or six years that has caused me to fundamentally reassess my arguments. I mean, the, the one people often ask me about is the Ukraine war. I mean, I anticipate in the book the possibility of a Russian invasion of Europe. I talk about in the book the, the, uh, the dangers posed by pandemics. I think it's probably made me appreciate more the arguments that I made that were somewhat inchoate in the book about economic interdependence and how countries can can have leverage over each other, and particularly the concern I had that China would have economic leverage over us. But fundamentally, it didn't, it didn't affect my thinking in a kind of fundamental way. It did allow me to write the book because, it, you know, there's it certainly reduced in very sad ways, but it reduced the number of distractions I had. So I was able to complete what it would really, I mean, I had not fully appreciated this before I started writing it, how hard a book is, especially if you want to write a book that, you know, it's for others to judge, but where I really tried to work through the argument in a very rigorous way. And sometimes people say, well, it's kind of, you know, a simplistic book. Well, in my view is if you want to make something simple, but accurate, it's very, very difficult. And so I really, really just like, you know, wrung all of the water out of that, out of that rag, if you will, until it was ready to, ready to go. That's probably not the best analogy, but, but that was sort of the, the, uh, uh, the effect of COVID, just at least on the, on the writing process. When you think about the, the, global landscape, at what point did China become, from your vantage point, kind of the, the, the biggest, in quotes, threats, right? Before it was Russia, right? then it was the Middle East, you know, you use that term economic leverage, Middle East around oil, obviously. Right. And now we transition to China. But what was the, what was the catalyst? What caused that transition to China becoming a bigger deal? Well, I think, it, you know, my, my own thing, I've always been what's, you know, in kind of political international relations theory, but it, it has an obviously a, a kind of a natural intuitive meaning as well, which is close is I've always been a realist, which is to say, you know, I don't look as much at people's stated intentions at any given point. I tend to look at how powerful they are and then think about, you know, how do you deal with that? You know, absolute power corrupts or power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, which, you know, that that's one of my core goals. So for a long time, and I, you know, my I didn't come out like at the head of Athena, Zeus perfectly formed in my thinking. I've developed and I've refined my thinking over the years. And actually, I had a you know the experience of the Iraq War, not from a military point of view, but kind of from a policy intellectual point of view, had a big effect on me. As many people are in my age, I'm in my forties. So and but you know it kind of confirmed me in my realistic thinking. So for a long time, there wasn't actually a very major threat that kind of loomed over. I started to get more and more concerned with China. I, I sort of had inklings that it was going to be an, more of an issue by the sort of 2000s, late 2000s. When I fit, graduated law school and decided not to practice law, I went back and I went to the kind of national security space, particularly with a more focus on defense. I started to read more about China's growing military capabilities. So I would say I really started to think more um, of China as the biggest challenge at the beginning of the last decade, so, you know, 2010 or, or thereabouts, and that kind of hurt because I saw, you know, China at that point was definitely not considered a quote-unquote malign actor. I mean, it had been, I guess, helpful in the financial crisis and so forth. But you could see in the military space that they were beginning to develop a military, and then you'd look at the economic growth that was forecast for them, you could say, well, this would make them really, really significant. So I started to think about that, and certainly by the early years of the decade, I was writing about that in shorter pieces. And I think there is almost an argument to me that... Uh, over time, because of China's uh, stronghold on rare earths, uh, metals and minerals and things that go into a lot of the tech that we use, that as the demand for tech uh, has increased and pro uh, proliferation of smartphones and, and chips and all this, 
that, that you could argue maybe shifted the balance of power to China just because of its own natural resources. You know, the biggest thing I tend to look at, there was a good thing, if you were looking at my at Twitter earlier, and thanks for doing that, um, that somebody put out a nice uh, visual map of like concentrations of GDP. And this is a really key part of the arguments in my book and, and on X and elsewhere, is that, you know, what matters in the modern world is economic productivity at scale. You know, a thousand years ago, advanced civilizations like China or the Byzantine Empire or the Persian Empire could be taken over by essentially barbarian tribes coming off the steppe because they had better military and the, and the relative military advantages were, were modest. Today, you know, since the invention of gunpowder and so forth and like much higher technology, that basically what, what gives you strength in every respect, of course, economically is economic scale and power, but also it gives you um, military power. You know, my, my, my key point is that, you know, th th those will be important no matter what. But if, if there is peace in the future, there will be a shifting of various supply chains, et cetera. And we already see that happening. So there will be more a kind of a, a new equilibrium that's reached. If there is a war, those things could be very, very important because they could decide who wins that war. And the key thing, and I think this is really important for market people is while the stakes are economic, or sometimes I use the term geoeconomic, it's about who has the money and really who controls the international economic system that we're now becoming. It's now more and more clear that Tom Friedman, the flat world was not real, that there are structures and those really matter and sanctions and so forth. A war can decide who sets those parameters. So people often say, why would somebody go to war? That's so expensive. It's so risky. But if the, if the, <laughs> he who wins the war sets the economic parameters of the globe, then you, you can understand why if you're successful in such a war, it can be tremendously attractive. And that's the danger uh, that, that we face going forward. Now, there's there are different ways of or, or interpretations of how to achieve war or have war uh, in a modern era. I mean, certainly there is an information war and, and technology war, you can argue. I am curious how uh, that plays into things, because going back to your point about it's about economic power and productivity. Technology is at the heart of that. Um, you're already seeing some of these policy changes happening from China and the U.S. when it comes to AI. Does that does that uh, alter timelines or change the trajectory? Yeah, I think it. Ca I think it can. So if you look at, I mean, to kind of get get kind of brass tacks, like if you look at why great powers tend to go to war, and if you go back to what I was just saying about it potentially being rational to go to war to be able to set the economic parameters. One of the key reasons that you you can find, especially in the last couple of centuries, about why great powers are willing to go to war is because they fear that if they don't go to war, the international economic environment will go against them. And the obvious example, the most clear example, probably being Japan in 1941, which knew that it was much weaker than the United States, but decided to try to create what it called the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. Why? Because it believed it was being strangled by the U.S. blockade of uh, oil and tin, I believe, which were critical to Japan's war effort, but also its economy in China at the time. Why is that so relevant right now? Well, because Xi Jinping himself is using the word, apparently it's the word in Chinese, strangled to describe what the United States is doing. So one of the areas where I'm a little bit off like this, I'm a little orthogonal to some of the, the policy debates is I tend to be very sort of hawkish, if you will, in terms of building up our military strength vis-a-vis -vis China, not to provoke a fight, but to deter one. But at the same time, I tend to be somewhat dovish in the nearer term, at least, about imposing economic sanctions on China. Because if you're, if you're looking at what the Chinese are saying, 
they are saying you are trying to strangle and contain and suppress our future economic growth, right? The worst possible situation. I'm like, I'm, I have no, I'm all in favor of decoupling and so forth as a, as a principle, as a policy matter. But the worst possible policy is to provoke a country that is as strong and authoritarian. So, you know, politically resolute, at least from if it decides to do something, at least for some time. Um, and believes it's being strangled from a position of relative military weakness, right? If you're going to impose these hardline economic measures on like semiconductors, et cetera, et cetera, you definitely don't want to do it from a position of weakness. So the problem right now is I fear that even though the Biden administration is sort of trying to walk this line of like imposing some of these measures, but then sending people to Beijing to tell the Chinese that we're not trying to strangle their economic growth. We're not actually convincing them. So the Chinese Ministry of State Security, and I think what was a pretty unprecedented statement, released a public statement about how we're trying to deceive them about containing and suppressing their growth. And at the same time, we're not focusing our military strength on the first island chain of, of the Pacific. Rather, we're actually focusing it in places like Europe and the Middle East. So to me, that is like the possibly the worst possible combination and a very dangerous one. And so when people talk about a Taiwan scenario, you have to look at Taiwan scenario in the context of this much broader issue, because, yes, the Chinese have very fervent nationalist views on Taiwan. That is true. But it's not just a nationalist issue. It also is the, the context of this broader geoeconomic geo future that we need to consider as well. How much of that is just narrative to divert the public in China around China's own policy mistakes? Right? It, it seems like that's a bit of a scapegoating tactic. Oh, you know, the U.S. is, is uh, strangling us. Uh, never mind the fact that we created this massive real estate bubble that's imploding. Well, I mean, how much is it how much is it sort of like a special pleading or defensiveness? It, it's hard to say. I think it's certainly probably some of that. And I, I guess the other thing I would say is how much of it is that just like a propaganda line from the Chinese central leadership itself. So I was on a Zoom call with a number of very prominent Chinese kind of policy types and former officials. And I asked this question, do you think we're trying to contain and suppress you? And like four or five of them, these are senior people, were like, absolutely, yes. Now, were they doing that because they want to stay in good shape with Xi Jinping and how that filters down the line? Probably. Is it also genuinely believed? I mean, we've seen uh, consistent messaging from Xi Jinping himself and people around him for, for some time. Uh, going, you know, probably over a year and it's been consistent and it, and it accords with like the reality record, right? Like, I mean, there is a lot of reason why the Chinese might feel that we are trying to hold down their future growth, right? I mean, I was actually, this was probably six or nine months ago. I was at a meeting of a number of, of ambassadors from Asia and not that, not the Chinese, but another one asked me the first question he said after I gave my presentation, he said, how do you respond to the fact that many Chinese, most Chinese believe that you're trying to hold down their growth and you could never stomach giving up the number one slot? And so to me, there's at least some truth to it. Um, does that mean that China's going to go to war? No, because going to war against the United States is a, you know, a huge, huge, huge risk. But it's, it means that you know, not only is it a sort of deductive structural thing they have to be concerned about, but rather, it's also something that we're seeing evidence for and, 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 and not, and by evidence, it's consistent coming from the top and also reflected across a wide range of indicators. I had, um, I've had Kyle Bass on these spaces in the past and he continuously kind of flags this, the, the, the alarm around people underestimate how much of our uh, medicine 
comes from China, right? right? The, and and that's sort of a real risk, and that's the real card that China uh, has. How do we detangle that? Everybody talks about deglobalization. I think they t- think in terms of you know manufacturing and commodities, but it seems like that's the real card that China has uh, from a global power perspective. It's the ability to actually control our prescriptions. Well, I think, I mean, to me, the things where we do want to decouple rapidly are the areas where if the Chinese pull the trigger on them, that they could bring us, you know, to our knees or something like it. They could cause real suffering. So medicine is one of them. I have to say that I think economic sanctions of any kind. So this is, you know, there's a tremendous amount of discussion about economic sanctions in all respects. You know, usually the U.S. imposing sanctions on someone else, Russia, Cuba, North Korea, whatever. But also, we need to think about it for ourselves. I don't think economic sanctions work very well. So I think if the Chinese actually pulled that trigger, there would be suffering and it would be very grave and serious for the people affected. But I think you would probably find adaptation happening relatively quickly. And the, ten, the result, and we found this ourselves, the result of such a move would be to reinforce to Americans that there's no way that we can possibly prudently allow China to produce such vital uh, things. Now, it seems like we learned that lesson over COVID. One of the things I'm trying to figure out, and you would have a better sense than I, Michael, is exactly how much decoupling is actually happening. I mean, you see people who are far more, more sophisticated on this stuff than I disagreeing. I mean, there's an argument that, well, U.S.-China trade, I guess, large well, actually increased, but you know, there's a lot of companies moving, Apple, et cetera, moving facilities out of China. Yet on the other hand, you see a lot of maybe what's intermediate trade to ASEAN countries or Mexico or something like that. You know, you Sino U.S. trades are at an all time high. The Panama Canal is being expanded. So like, you know, Chinese goods going to the East Coast, et cetera. So I, I don't know, but I don't I don't think that's I, I disagree with my friend Kyle there about what is the most significant threat. I think the most significant threat is their military, because one thing that really can coerce countries is direct military force. I mean, what you're seeing, for instance, now with a shoe on the other foot is the United States imposing probably the most significant sanctions effort, I mean, short of a world war, we've seen in history against Russia, and it basically completely falling flat in space. Why? Because oil is fungible, the natural resources the Russians have are fungible, the Chinese will step in. I mean, Chinese uh, China, I believe, is now the biggest car exporter in the world. It's supplanted Europe and others because it's taking Russian market share. So if you had a medicine issue in the United States because the Chinese cut it off, I'm sure you'd see, you know, factories all over the place. You'd have government intervention on the U part of the United States, probably the European Union as well, saying, whoa, we can't deal with this anymore. We're going to we're going to fix this problem. And it might be produced in Latin America or South Asia or something or, or as well as in, in our own countries. But I think that's what you would have happen. Military force is different because if they've got a gun to your face and they're occupying your country, you don't have a choice anymore. And the point of the, the invasion, with the exception of Taiwan, is not annexation because annexation doesn't really pay anymore. It's more of a pain than it's worth. That's why you had decolonization, basically. But rather, it's because you can force a country to array its economy around you. And that's the core prize goal. Is it like there's a tendency to think, you know, I'm reading a journal and stuff like that. And there's a lot of good reporting about how there's shifting in markets and adaptation. Well, that's all dependent on countries being able to make their own choice. But if like if you're in the Taiwan or the Philippines or South Korea and the Chinese have a gun to your head, you don't make a free choice. You reorient your economy around China. And that's a much different world. Do you suspect that if China does ultimately go into Taiwan, it will get involved militarily as opposed to just show force and, and threaten? 
Look, I think halfway measures don't work. So, I um, mean, I think that's if it's if it's evident to me, it should be evident to the Chinese, and it's Taiwan's never going to fall into their lap peacefully. So, if they're going to have to go by force, then the best strategy is to go big or go home. And I go into this at some length in my book, and that means an invasion. I mean, you could have a blockade and other things as part of it, but you, you just go big or go home because it doesn't doesn't work. I mean, you've seen. I mean, the Russians have sort of partially turned it around, unfortunately, but. Um, you know, at the beginning of the of the Ukraine war, they I mean, they invaded, but they kind of did like a half baked job and they're still paying for it. So I think if um, if the Chinese are going to do something about it, which they say they want to do it, and there are rational reasons why they might do so, both given the specifics of the Taiwanese political situation, but also these macro factors I'm talking about where they believe that we're going to try to contain and suppress them. Then you go in big, you go with an invasion, et cetera, and you make sure you, you defeat the Americans and the Taiwanese, et cetera. Um, and the key thing there, and this is really important for market actors, is you give as little clear warning as possible. There's no real way for the Chinese to completely obscure all preparations for a large invasion. But what they can do is a combination of like hiding in plain sight. So like just basically normalizing things. That would be indicators. This is what they are already doing. I mean, just yesterday, I think there was a big story about how they're flying more balloons over China. They've got aircraft moving. They've got ship moving. They are doing exercises. That's one thing. And then kind of creeping, you know, half measures that are sort of like, you know, boiling the frog in terms of warning where it's never quite clear enough. But then when they go, they, they're able to move inside of what you could call like our OODA loop that they basically, that's the military term, meaning like how fast you can respond and so forth. But that's what I'm worried about. And they, that's essentially consistent with what they're doing. I mean, after, for instance, Nancy Pelosi's visit in late during in sort of the summer of 2022, they started doing things that we would have historically regarded as indicators of a preparations for an invasion, at least in part. And now that now that's just baked in. Um, and so, you know, that that's what we that's what I, I think, you know, especially from a kind of market point of view is I don't think you're going to get a super clear. Oh, this is definitely going to happen. And bear in mind, in the Ukraine case, the Americans made the judgment that the Russians were going to go in. But most people, including a lot of the Ukrainians, didn't believe us. So that's like that's a big part. Even there, there is ambiguity. And there was a part of geopolitics around uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I, you have to track as much closer than I do, but I think there was a lot of concern that China would get increasingly closer politically to Russia. Has that narrative played out or has China largely kind of kept an arm's distance from what you're seeing when it comes to Russia, given the war with Ukraine? Oh, no, I think they're basically in a full kind of uh, alliance. I mean, you know, alliance is like a formal term. So like, what's not um, basically they are China's definitely in Russia's camp, but China's acting in a way that maximizes the benefits of doing so and minimizes the costs to them of doing so. Because why? Because they're, you know, geopolitics is not charitable work. They're not looking to, like, help the Russians out for its own sake. But there is a deep, deep alignment, certainly at the leader level. I'm Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin seem to have a very deep kind of I I think it's almost a friendship, but certainly like a deep, deeply kind of aligned way of looking at the world, but also structurally, given the fact that both regard the kind of U.S. led system as the as as by far the primary threat to their interest. So what China is doing, I actually think China has benefited tremendously from the situation. It's actually an optimal point of view from China's point of view, which is that the U.S. is tied down. 
substantially in Europe. Um, they spent a lot of money, resources, political will, and now the war isn't even going that well. Um, meantime, Russia has become essentially a dependent junior partner to China, whereas, you know, before Russia was more of an independent actor, there was alignment, but like Putin and Moscow were, were pursuing an independent, more independent policy. Now they're really dependent on China. So if you're thinking from China's point of view, especially if you're thinking as Xi Jinping regularly tells the Chinese people to be prepared for extreme circumstances and choppy waters, now you have like a dependent natural resource and one of the world's major powers firmly in your camp and basically your junior, right? So that's huge. China is basically propping up Russia in the single most important way, which is propping up the Russian economy. So like, instead of being economically isolated, Russia's, you know, got hugely growing trade with China. Now it's also a place like India and Middle East and South Asia, ASEAN, et cetera. But China is by far the biggest actor there. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Um, you know, Russia has a huge military industrial complex. So the fact that the Chinese are not providing, allegedly, we don't, we're not totally sure, lethal military aid to Russia is kind of immaterial because the Russians can produce it itself, themselves. And where they have gaps, the Russians and the Chinese, I'm sure, are collaborating on this or conniving at least, but they're using the Iranians and the North Koreans as cutouts, right? Countries that are already pariahs, but that have their own interests to collaborate that are now getting political and military and economic relief from the Sino-Russian axis where they can help the Russians out. And then the Chinese don't have to pay the price yet. There's a sort of a fiction um, that allows the Europeans to continue to have this idea that maybe they could collaborate with China. Um, so I, I think it's actually been a tremendous. And now the Russians are tragically doing like, you know, the momentum is more on their side. We'll see how the war goes in Europe in this in, in 2024. But I think it's, you know, and the United States is tied down not only in Europe, but now increasing on the Middle East. So it's really I mean, Economically, China's in, facing some headwinds, but from a geopolitical point of view, I think that the, the, they've done very well over the last couple of years, certainly relative to us. All right, let's take it to the investing side, uh, because geopolitics, geopolitical dynamics are always challenging and interesting to think through uh, outside of markets and even harder to think through inside of the domain of investing. How does one even consider these dynamics, these longer term trends from like a, a portfolio construction perspective, right? Because if you talk about uh, ongoing potential conflict, China, it still seems that the, the clearest bridge there in terms of what it means for a portfolio is it's totally about supply chains uh, more than anything else. But how should investors think through uh, this world that we're in? Yeah, I mean, I think it is very challenging. And I think supply chains are an obvious one. I mean, I would, you know, I, I'm loath to make predictions because, you know, I mean, but, you know, I recognize market actors do have to make predictions at some level. So, I mean, to try to be as useful as possible. I mean, I just think it's very, it's hard for me to envision getting out of this decade or into early into the next one um, without 
a conflict or a militarily significant crisis. And a militarily significant crisis, you could think like the Berlin crisis or Cuban Missile Crisis uh, during the Cold War. And and why is that? Well, I mean, I've talked about these structural geoeconomic factors, why China has a reason to move, right? Because it feels it's being contained even under a Democratic administration, let alone what it might anticipate under a Republican administration. So from China's perspective, again, looking rationally, it's never going to go back to like G2, you know, Chimerica kind of model that would they're not stupid. And it would be stupid to, to imagine that, I think, practically speaking. And then there's the specific dynamics on Taiwan, which is, you know, Taiwan. And there's a big article in the Wall Street Journal today from Ling Ling Wei about how, you know, there's been a number of articles. Nobody on Taiwan wants unification with China. So or a very, very small number of people. So it ain't going to happen peacefully. Um, and they increasingly in China, I think, again, rationally believe the United States is likely to come to Taiwan's defense, right? I mean, I think that's a, a reasonable assumption, especially when you consider the downsides of getting that, that wrong if you're Beijing. So those are, you know, those are significant reasons. Then you add on top of that a couple other factors. One is Xi Jinping himself, which is most of the credible analysis I've seen suggests that China is centralized to a degree that has not been the case since, I guess, Mao Zedong. Um, and Mao was kind of, you know, sort of weird leadership styles at least, but, but she has really concentrated power in China and he's over 70 years old. He's not immortal. He's a Marxist, right? So like, if he's going to do something, you know, there's an incentive to do something before you get too old or you step off. And of course, people mention the fact that he's the first guy since Mao to get a third, you know, leadership term in the Chinese, in the uh, communist system. So like, why would he do that? And he's elevated his own stature to be at the level of Mao Zedong and so forth. So there's like a lot of, and I mean, you just look at this man. He seems like a very determined person, ruthless. He's demonstrated that inside the Chinese system, which is much more dangerous for him personally and his family than international politics, where there are constraints on what you do to an adversary leadership because you're worried about nuclear war. That, that's something that's very telling about him. Okay. The other thing is, there's a lot of reason to think that China's relative military advantage in the Western Pacific, in particular, will will peak uh, sometime, you know, kind of over the course of the next, you know, six plus years or whatever. And so if you're China and you're aware of that, and you, you I mean, this is what we were trying to work on with the strategy back in the Pentagon five, six years ago, is shifting the American attention that's continued actually in the Biden administration Pentagon, at least notionally trying to focus on China. So over time, the American military, Taiwan's too slowly moving Japan is too slowly moving Philippines, Australia, et cetera. The military balance is going to potentially get less favorable to China. You put those factors together, and you know, just from a rational point of view, this is what alarms me so much: is none of this is none of this is based on my pretending to have some special insight into Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping's brain or how Chinese people work, or et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is important because a lot of like when I do you know engage with market people, like first of all. There's a tendency to think, I think less now than there was a few years ago, but there's a tendency to think geopolitics is this kind of like, I mean, I remember briefing a very prominent, uh, you know, financial services type person a few years ago. And you get, it was talking about this stuff. I mean, you just get the sense the guy thought this stuff was like Dungeons and Dragons or whatever kind of weirdo, like not real world stuff. Well, I mean, I think hopefully the Russia invasion and the fact that the Chinese are avidly preparing for conflict has disabused people of that idea. Like war is real and it can pay. Um, there's that. And then I think a lot of the people who speak about China often are very like China will do this or, you know, for instance, the, our, our own intelligence community has said Xi, Xi Jinping doesn't want a war. And I've responded to this on X. I don't know if you saw this one, but basically saying like, 
well, this is the same intelligence community that's being reported by the Wall Street Journal, based on what look to be pretty good sources, not to have any access into the inner circle of Xi Jinping. So on what basis are they making that claim? Right. And in any case, what does it mean not to want a war? Most countries don't want war, even though they go to war because they feel it's obligatory or it's net beneficial, even if they don't want to do it. Right. I mean, Douglas MacArthur, whatever, nobody fears a war like a soldier. But, you know, nonetheless, people go to war. So if you're if you're thinking about that and you apply those discounts accordingly and so forth to, quote unquote, authoritative sources, I think you'd be pretty well advised to at least cover yourself from a risk perspective for the potential for a conflict with China. And what that could look like, I actually think just going back to the economic stuff, I think trade could continue between the United States and China, I mean, China in the context of a war. It might be indirect, but I mean, people are sort of acting like, yes, it would collapse the world economy if China and the United States completely ceased trade. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Ergo, it's possible you could have a war and continue trade. Do we know that that happens? Yes, it's been happening. The Russians and the Ukrainians have continued some of their economic arrangements over the course of the last couple of years. I think some of them have eroded over time, but I think natural gas, I mean, there's the grain deal coming out of the Black Sea ports. If you go back to the First World War, there was actually trade between Britain and Germany, at least at the beginning of the war. And then, of course, you have intermediaries, which is there is trade, there's substantial trade, between Europe and Russia, it's just often going through intermediaries, which, you know, see no evil, hear no evil. But that, that's, that's sort of good news at one level, because it means like the world economy won't necessarily collapse. But it's also bad news because it means that war is more palatable, it's more plausible, it's more thinkable. And so that to me suggests on multiple levels that people should be saying, look, this is a very real possibility. Does it mean completely pulling out of China? Look, if, you know, I, I'm going to leave aside what I think is a patriotic or whatever, I don't presume to be able to say what that is. But as a market actor, I think at a, at a minimum, you would want to pre- place a pretty heavy risk premium, despite what I'm saying, on direct, inv- you know, investments in China uh, or reliance on China, some, something that might be close. Why do you say that? Well, even if like a war could be relatively short or something, but, you know, if we lose a war, for instance, I think one of the ways that we would try to compensate we, the Americans, would be to impose heavier economic sanctions on China, even if it was somewhat self-defeating. So if you're directly exposed, it could be very dangerous. In addition, now you see, for instance, initially there was a freezing of a lot of the assets of the Russian government, Russian oligarchs. But now there's increasing discussion as the situation is getting worse in Ukraine or you know, us, the West, et cetera, of, of confiscating those assets. So I think that, I mean, and that's a natural phenomenon in a war as it becomes more attritional, as it goes on longer, as it becomes costlier. And frankly, God forbid, but a war, if it happened between China and the United States, could well turn out like that. And so I think if you're exposed, you could be in a lot of danger. I try to veer away from politics you know, when I do these spaces, because I think you know, people get very hyped based on their own political views. But um, do you sense that China prefers having uh, a president who's a Democrat versus a Republican? I'm curious how 
who's in charge and which parties in charge impacts China's view of what it can or can't do. I honestly tend to discount those claims by people, not you, uh, that it's one way or the other. I mean, I think if you actually look at what they tend to say and the way they believe, I actually think, and this is pretty reasonable, that policy on, for instance, China is relatively consistent across administrations between Democrat and Republican. I'm a Republican, so I, and I'm very focused on China, and I believe that the United States would focus more on China probably under Republican administration. So I think for a variety of reasons that, that we would be better off with the Republican administration, but discounting that accordingly, others might say the Chinese, well, Democrats will get along better with the Europeans, for instance, maybe, and the Chinese don't want that. So I don't think it's like a total wash uh, one way or the other, except to say that, I mean, if a Republican were to pursue the kind of policies that I'm talking about, I think that would be better for China. I do think, and I've said this is consistent, I'm not just taking a partisan side here. I do think the foreign policy results, as I was saying earlier, of the last few years have been very beneficial for China. If, again, you think a war is a, you know, plausible in the future, again, I think a lot of the analysis about the future of the China situation come down to how serious the risk of a war is. Because if a war, I, the way I put it is, by the Biden foreign policy on China and Asia will work out pretty well, I think, if there is no war with China in the relatively near to medium term. Because what they're doing is they're taking a lot of steps politically with relationships, Quad, AUKUS, the trilateral with Japan and Korea. They're trying to bring the Asian countries more closer to, more close to the, closely to the Europeans through things like the Ukraine, but Taiwan, Taiwanese and the Chinese. You know, at some, I mean, the, encouraging the Japanese to give Patriot air defense missiles to the basically to us, and then we would give them to the Ukrainians. Basically, those if China is not going to make a military move, then those are kind of symbolic political benefits that bring together a large coalition. If, on the other hand, I'm correct, and I don't think this is a strictly partisan, it's more of an analytical distinction. If I think a war is plausible, or if you think a war is as real a possibility as I do, that is both not going to help. A lot of these political maneuvers don't help because, you know, you can't, I mean, the way I put it is you can't stop up the PLA with hashtags. And also it's actually net negative because you're taking military capacity away from either directly, as in the case of the Patriots from Japan, or you're limiting the ability to improve by orienting it to other theaters, particularly Europe uh, and, and the Middle East. So I think that's where a lot of the Dynamic comes to, of course, that this is also a dynamic situation. The very fact that the administration's policy might help, might work a lot better in a condition of peace could actually make war more likely because it would be, from a rational point of view, it would be more in Beijing's interest to act in a way that doesn't allow them to succeed, especially when you're China and you are saying consistently that you believe you're being strangled, right? Why would you, does Xi Jinping seem like the kind of person Who's just going to allow himself to be strangled? I don't think so. There's another, um, I think, interesting element to this, which is a different type of war, which is you can argue maybe the a culture or information type of war in the way that China uh, shows content through social media platforms like TikTok to you know, younger generation in the U.S. versus what they show within their own borders. I see some interesting stats that suggest that uh, as TikTok has risen, it so happens that being patriotic among the younger, younger generation in the U.S. has fallen uh, the last several years. 
uh, because it seems like uh, the types of material that's being shown by the algorithm is anti-American in its in, in the way it's being presented. You, you get a sense that China maybe is purposely and and not just purposely, but just more sophisticated than the U.S. when it comes to trying to create internal divisions. I tend to be, for, I'll put it bluntly, pretty dismissive of sort of a lot of like the kind of disinformation, quote unquote, propaganda type stuff on multiple levels. Um, one is the most fundamental from a strategic point of view is I don't think any of that's going to matter unless China can translate that into military advantage, right? Because people can argue all they want and there can be you know discord in this country, but China's got to turn that into increased gains somehow. And if they push too hard, and you've seen this repeatedly with the Chinese in the last few decades, in the last decade or so, when they try to push against countries they've been building leverage against, you get a countervailing response. Why? Because people say, who are these guys to push us around? Even weak and small and poor countries push back on them. And then that actually is somewhat either of a unifying force, as you've seen in Taiwan, for instance, where almost everybody is now less part of China, or it's a cudgel politically that one faction in a country can use against another. If somebody's like, oh, well, the Chinese are you know, trying to not just like selling us TikTok, right? Because like, okay, you can like put TikTok around and people can get, you know, argue more maybe. But then then that's different than China saying, aha, now I want you to drop all your tariffs and we're still going to have tariffs and you have to do X, Y, Z. Then people are going to say, wait a minute, what? It's like, <laughs> that's a totally different thing, right? And so I, I, the only way you can really do that is direct military force, basically, in, in, in my view. And so that's why I keep going back to the military balance because people tend, like my good friend, Mike Gallagher, the chairman of the, of the, the committee on Chinese Communist Party. I mean, Mike is very good on the military balance, but there's also all these other things, you know, economic warfare, culture, soft power stuff. And I'm kind of like, look, that stuff, in some ways, we may want to shelve a lot of that stuff until we get the military power right. Not to mention that we also want to limit the extent to which China regards this as an existential struggle if we can. So that's one reason. The second reason is I just, and this gets into some of the domestic, a lot of the domestic arguments. I just personally tend to think that like, and there's strict limits into how any actor and certainly like a foreign actor that doesn't have like the finger feel of American political culture can really dominate and, and more like turn like turn um, uh, Americans views in the way they prefer. Like you may be able to like <laughs> promote stuff that is kind of dumb or you know silly or whatever if people like it. But then people that's because people like it. Um, but more like to make people more China, more pro-China. Well, actually, the, the, the standing of the PRC has declined precipitously, not only in the United States, but all around the world, pretty much over the last five years. So I'm just like, I don't think soft power and disinformation type stuff is a big problem. This becomes a very big issue in the Taiwan context, because a lot of the Taiwanese people are like, well, the big problem is disinformation and soft power from China. And it's like, well, China's, the number of people who want to unify with China has like gone through the, 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 the floor basically in Taiwan. So the problem kind of solves itself. So to me, I'm like, you know, people have different views about TikTok. I'm certainly not pro TikTok. I think like it's not good for like the Communist Party to have like a direct control into our system. But like, I, I, I think the main problem is really the more of this like hard power military balance stuff. Again, you're, you're immersed in this and, and you've done this and obviously written about it and thought about this for a long time. But for those that are not really tracking these dynamics, uh, closely, how do they even uh, properly educate themselves? Because, okay, I'm with you on the misinformation 
uh, or Infowar type of dynamic. But the reality is the media doesn't really talk about it that much until something really bad right. happens. Right. Um, right. right. So it's hard and it's hard to really know the, the proper trusted sources anyway yeah. in this kind of yeah. environment that we're in. So how do people even even get themselves up to date on things? That's a great question. I mean, I would say the media reporting, I mean, I track it closely, the kind of, you know, sort of mainstream or corporate media, depending on how you refer to it. The reporting on China has gotten a lot better and more detailed in the last couple of years. So I think it may be more that it's the kind of story that doesn't get as much traction, right? Because it's always it's hypothetical. I mean, one of the problems that I face a lot, and I was dealing with this, for instance, when I, I briefed the parts of the Congress last last spring, and I was saying why we need to focus more on China than on Russia. And one of the members of Congress was like, well, this war is happening and like the other war is not. And it's like, well, yeah, but if that, I mean, as a market guy, like if you have a 50% chance, and I'm not saying but like, if you have a 50% chance of like a fatal outcome that destroys your business and a hundred percent chance of a bad thing, but that is manageable, you should probably pay a lot of attention to the former. Right? So that's, that's, I think a big part of the issue. I mean, I think not to be self serving, but like, I think what I, one of the things I try to do in, in my, you know, X engagement is, is promote or whatever, find sources that, that give a clearer sense of, um, of what's going on. I think the China military power report that the Pentagon releases is pretty, is pretty sobering and pretty, pretty accurate. I'm just trying to think about, I mean, what's specifically, uh, more to more to say. I mean, I think unfortunately the problem is that there isn't clarity about how exactly China will act, and they have, but they have incredible incentives to prevent us from having certainty, right? Because if you're going to act militarily, you want to be not only opaque but also deceptive, essentially. So that's sort of that's one of, one of the big one of the big problems. But there 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 are a lot of good people working on these issues. Um, it's it's. Uh, you know, and I mean, uh, I, again, as I said, I, I, I try to promote them. Uh, and actually, you so said on that, on that point, speaking of promoting, promote yourself for a little bit. Okay, so it's, it's, all right, fine. <laughs> so it's, it's, and again, please make sure you follow uh, Elvis Bowie here on X. Uh, again, this will be an edited podcast. But yeah, as we wrap up, for those that want to track more your thoughts, more your work, and maybe just give a pitch on the books, uh, just go through all Yeah, of thanks a lot. I mean, look, the, my book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in the Age of Great Power Conflict, I actually think, and I mean this sincerely, I actually think it's more relevant now than it was even when it came out in 2021, because the situation with China is much more urgent. It's gotten worse in the last three years. Like the military balance has gotten worse. The political dynamic has probably gotten worse between Washington and Beijing. And our overall geopolitical and military situation is also worse. Like our military is in a parlous state from a readiness point of view. I mean, people kind of can't really believe it. But if you read, if you look at what the people who are most up to date on the military, both senior ranking officers, and, and civilian officials, but also people, you know, on X who, who know what's going on. It's not in great shape. Like it's not the Italian army in 1941 or whatever, but it's, it ain't what people really think it is. And then geopolitically, there's a massive land war in Europe that shows no signs of ending anytime soon. There's a huge war. Well, there's a big war in the, in the Middle East that could turn into an even bigger war in the Middle East. So our, basically the book is trying to lay out what we need to prioritize. And I think, you know, in, in a sense, what I'd, what I'd really love for our political culture to adopt is more of like a business mindset. And this is one of the things I find so hard, you know, is that people say, yeah, you have, yeah, okay, maybe it's a priority, but you got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I was like, I didn't go to business school, but I thought the, I thought the classic 
description of good leadership management is like pick your priority and ruthlessly serve that priority, Steve Jobs or whatever, right? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? And that's not what we're doing. And the book is like a developed argument for why to focus on China, why the military balance matters most, not because I'm Dungeons and Dragons fighting all these kinds of things, but rather because that is like rationally what matters most. And I think it tracks with China's behavior. And then why, how, why and how we can mitigate in other theaters and respects, not to say that we just abandon the rest of the world, but we have to put the priority resources on the priority. So that's the, that's the book. Again, I think it's as relevant, it's probably more relevant now than it was then. And then on X, in a sense, what I, I actually find X to be a tremendously valuable platform. And I think Michael, you do too. There's no gatekeepers and especially somebody who's really trying to push again. I mean, the problem that I face, the sort of if you kind of have a problem statement for me as an actor in, in this area and so forth, is I'm trying to push against like entrenched ways of thinking and acting that I think are were forgivable if misguided five years ago or 10 years ago. But right now we're like catastrophic and like essentially unforgivable. We cannot act as if we are in a position that we're not from a power from a resources point of view. And I'm trying to push against that. X is incredibly valuable because a lot of the kind of commanding heights of say like the op-ed pages are still in the hands of people who have this more classic unipolar moment attitude or something like that. And so what I try to do in X and I try to be my sharpness, as I've said in, in, in uh, you know, kind of one of my bigger tweets is my sharpness comes because I think a war is possible and we're not prepared and we could lose and it would be disastrous no matter what happens. Like, I really don't want a war. And if you don't want a war, you prepare for the war to deter it. Then you'll see why I'm acting the way I act. And, I, and what I try to do is promote things that I think are worth dealing with. You know, th- this morning I put out a couple of news sources that, you know, kind of uh, tweeting things that, that were inconsistent. But I also try to engage with people. And the way I engage with people is I don't care whether you're famous or not. That's not my criterion. My criterion is, are you engaging in an intellectually serious, you know, you're not engaging in ad hominem or distortive or, you know, nasty or kind of silly ways or whatever. But that basically, I, you know, because I think it's pretty clear, actually, <laughs> that the so-called foreign policy establishment does not have a monopoly on wisdom, if anything, to the contrary. So we actually need, and, and the only way we're going to change that is if people all over, not only this country, but in friendly countries, and even in, you know, I engaged a lot with Chinese accounts, basically partially saying, here's what I'm trying, arguing that we should do, which is to say, don't dominate the rest of us. Don't try to dominate. The, but I also have enormous respect for China and you should be one of the world's great pa- superpowers, you know? So I think that's an immense, so that's where I spend a lot of time. I think TV podcasts like this are a great way, obviously, because, you know, the spoken word is much more nuanced and you can get into more, uh, you know, subtlety and so forth and, and make the point. Um, but that's really what, that's really what I'm, what I'm trying to do. So hopefully people find it um, useful and engaging and, and ultimately persuasive and in the ways that they can, hopefully they will also try to push us in this direction because I really want peace, but we need to have peace from a position of strength. That's the only way you're going to get it. Appreciate everybody that uh, joined here. I'll try to have this as an edited podcast in uh, one or two days. And Elbridge, I really do appreciate your knowledge and your passion. I think uh, I've personally enjoyed this conversation quite a bit. I think the audience as well. That's great to hear, Michael. Really, really a pleasure and big fan of your work as well. So thank you. Thank everybody. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, 
tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.